podcast of the Lead Centre for Dante Studies. Welcome to the latest in our conversations on Dante. I'm Matthew Traherne, and in this podcast series, I'm talking with researchers and practitioners about work and ideas which can help shape how we think about Dante, his works, his context, and the way he plays a role in the cultures of the world. In this episode, I'm talking with Guy Ruffer, Associate Professor in Italian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Guy is known as the author of the book Divine Dialectic, Dante's Incarnational Poetry, published by Toronto University Press in 2000, as well as two books, Dante Worlds, which are readers' guides to Dante's comedy, and the award-winning online project, Dante Worlds. His most recent book is Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy, published in December 2020 by Harvard University Press. And in our conversation, we talk about what we can learn from Guy's rich study of the history of Dante's dead body, as well as Guy's groundbreaking work in digital humanities, and his new project, provisionally entitled Dante's American Inferno, funded by a Public Scholars Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Guy has really important things to say, not just about Dante and Dante's afterlife, but also about what it means to be a scholar, both the excitement and pleasure of research and his journey to being a public scholar and what being a public scholar means to him. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Guy, it's really great to speak to you today. Thank you, Matthew. It's wonderful to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast, as you know, and I'm thrilled to be one of the speakers. Oh, thank you so much. I suppose the prompt for our conversation really was the publication of your book, Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy, that came out just a few weeks ago, really, with Harvard University Press. It's such a great story, and it's also such a great way to tell a story about Dante, his afterlife. It's one of those things where you think, wow, that's such a good idea. You feel a slight amount of envy as <laughs> of, of an author. Just think, well, how did you come up with the idea to write a book about Dante's dead body? <laughs> I'll give you the more direct pieces of the story. One beginning, 1999 was a year in which several little mementos, they were called relics at the time, were found. One of them was in the National Library in Florence, and they caused quite a stir. All of the Italian newspapers had them in the headlines, and they made it into the UK and other places in the US, and, and we all heard about this Dante dust that had been mysteriously found that had been lost for many years. And so obviously that, that grabbed uh, my attention right away. And the journalists had some knowledge of maybe what had gone on to produce these relics and why they came there, but it was very sketchy. You know, I, I sort of made a mental note to myself that this was an interesting topic. And I think I was probably writing maybe just a little essay at the time on Dante's exile, you know, for one of our Italian studies journals, Nali Vitalinstica. And I probably just tacked on a little paragraph at the end about this exile kind of continuing perhaps after Dante died at the fact that somehow pieces of him were not where they were supposed to be. But, you know, I didn't really, I was working on other things at the time, uh, Dante World, another book I was doing. I just finished my first book, Divine Dialectic. And so maybe about seven, eight years later, 2008 or so, I was in New York City. I, I spent my summers working at Columbia University, which you may know has a wonderful Italian collection. Their library is fantastic. And I came upon... I guess it was basically official reports from 1865 when Dante's body, and we'll hear about this 
in a little bit, Dante's body had been found, not where it was supposed to be. It was found in the wall, a little chapel, not far from the original tomb, but not in the original tomb. <laughs> and Ravenna, of course, is where Dante is and was buried. And they analyzed all of this and they wrote up these very, very detailed reports. It was a national event. And this just happened, oh, I guess it happened just a couple of weeks after Dante's 600th birthday celebration in Florence. So it was a very auspicious uh, moment to actually find this body at the same time that Italy was celebrating Dante's birthday, but also the birth of the nation. This is 1865, of course, the Risorgimento had just occurred. And Florence, we sometimes forget, was actually the capital of Italy for a very short period before it went to Rome, between Torino and Rome. And this was that time. And so it was a big, big Dante year, as we were about to experience in 2021 with the 700th anniversary of his death. And Colombia had had these documents and had many other documents from that period. And so I was probably in the editing phase of the previous book at the time, but I thought, okay, this is my next project, something to do with Dante's dead body. So that is the way in which I came upon it in a very academic sort of way. But, you know, I have to say, Matthew, it's, it was a very personal story for me. This book, I started it in 2008, 2009, I guess, researching it. I finished it in 2019 and it's published in 2020, as you say. I've always been fascinated with tombs, <laughs> with, uh, with cemeteries. Uh, some of that is a bit uh, morbid, perhaps. You know, I can talk about that in relationship to Dante's work itself. But for me, my earliest memory in my life is when I was three years old, watching the television screen, and it was the funeral of John F. Kennedy, the American president who was slain that year. And the image, it's an iconic image, everybody knows this image of his son, his little son, John Kennedy, John John, who was at the church, St. Matthew's Church in Washington, where Joe Biden uh, just, uh, just had a mass after his immigration. And the little boy is saluting the casket of his father as he comes out of uh, the church and is on his way to the National Cemetery in Arlington. And that is, I mean, it's literally the earliest visual image I have <laughs> from a very, very young age. And I've seen it so many times since, you know, in documentaries and televisions that it's, you know, that's hard to separate my memory from seeing it then. But I've always been very, very fascinated with that, with that idea of, you know, of, of sort of burial and sort of what it means to commemorate a person. And obviously this was a U.S. president. And just to, just to tie it into where I started, 1999 is when that son, that little boy died himself, John, John, very tragically, you might remember in a plane crash. And it happened more or less in the same week that these Dante relics <laughs> were found in Florence. So when I was reading the Italian newspapers, when I went back a few years after 2008, and I started to write the book, and I eventually got to those chapters, and I went back to those Italian newspapers, I would often see stories about what had happened to, to John Kennedy Jr., his, his death. He was 40 years old. Now, he was the exact same age I was. You know, he was three years old when he, you know, when he was saluting his father's casket. I was three years old when I was watching that. So I had this, this lifelong kind of connection with this, with this uh, man whom I obviously never knew, and it hit me very hard when that happened in 1999. So it's a very personal story, and my own father died a few years later. And I, I thought about Dante a lot because I grew up in an area that has a lot of pine trees in eastern Long Island, a couple of hours outside of New York City. And uh, my dad was buried in Pine Lawn National Cemetery. And I remember when I was uh, giving the eulogy, I was very much thinking of Dante and thinking of the pine forest, obviously, outside of Ravenna that he, he talks about at the end of the Purgatorio on the top of the mountain. And uh, I grew up in a, in a town called Smithtown Pines. I went to the Pines Elementary School. So pine trees, as I say in the acknowledgments to this book, is sort of the totem 
plant or tree of the whole book, not the traditional cypress. So that's a very personal connection, but I just wanted to uh, throw that out there because even though I don't write about that very much in the book at all, it was always sort of working its way in my mind as I was doing this research on, on Dante's uh, afterlife. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing all of that. And, you know, just listening to you there, it just strike me that First of all, one of the bits in the of the story that you tell in the book that really grabbed me was that the immediate moments after Dante's death, which, you know, we tend to, I think those of us who read Dante and talk about Dante a lot, you know, often the story kind of ends with the end of writing the Paradiso. <laughs> but actually to have that, that it, that it was quite startling, really, to feel the story continuing with the, you know, the immediate stages after after Dante's death which I just found utterly compelling and you're straight into this story and it grips you straight away. But the other thing that strikes me in what you've just said is that, you know, I, I found myself thinking a lot recently and actually in the conversations for this podcast, we've talked quite a lot about grief, mourning and the readers of the early readers of Dante's texts. I've always thought, you know, it's really important for us to sort of imagine how the reading of this text is not just a sort of abstract description of the afterlife. It's not distant. Actually, it's going to be bound up with people's own experiences of burying their dead, of mourning for them, praying for their souls in purgatory. You know, one of the, we'll talk a bit about Florence later, but I, one of the things I tried to do a, a number of stages over the years is to think about, well, what are the places in Florence where you can really kind of feel some sort of connection yeah. with Dante, or at least understand something about Dante's text? And one of the places that I find really affecting is the Piazza di Limbo, which is just this tiny little place where the unbaptized children were buried mm -hmm. and I always think when people were reading about limbo you know we tend to talk a lot about the virtuous pagans and Dante's innovation but actually there's a kind of there's a well of grief and sadness and presumably great anguish that many many readers would have brought to reading that thinking about their own experiences of burying children so even though the stories you just told about your own memories your own experiences and the connection with Dante's own dead body and his burial just feels very rich as a way into thinking about Dante in general. And, you know, you, you mentioned purgatory. Uh, I mentioned it too for the, the pine forest. And in a way, that really is the cantica of, of my story. I'm not writing about the Divine Comedy directly, as you know, but I do try to tie in the, the story of Dante's bones when appropriate with parts of his own work. And the one that kept coming up was purgatory because of, as you say, that, that sense of nostalgia in some sense, in some ways, but also grief and mourning. But really the way in which purgatory, it's always been a beautiful concept to me. I mean, apart from any sort of theological logical faith belief, but just because it's the way the dead and the living connect. And Dante, especially, he goes beyond even the theologians, beyond Thomas Aquinas, because he allows the souls in purgatory to actually pray for the people back on earth. It's not just the souls as people in the Catholic tradition would pray for the, for the dead. My grandmother, we used to light candles in a church. You know, that's very beautiful, but Dante actually takes it further. He makes it reciprocal. And it's that mutual care for one another between the living and the dead that I've always found so moving and so beautiful about purgatory itself. So that definitely is the place that I'm thinking most of when I'm writing uh, the story. And also because that's where we find stories like Manfred and, and Bonconte, these, these untuned soldiers. Manfred, the uh, first son who dies on the battlefield in Canto Three of the Purgatory, and then uh, tells how his bones were thrown out of the sacred territory, but yet they were still honored by the soldiers who made sort of a makeshift gravesite for him. And then Bonconte, even more dramatically, his body is never found. Dante would have been at that battle in 1289 in Campaldino and, and would have known this 
story of Bonconte uh, being killed, perhaps, but not knowing what happened to his body. And so those untuned soldiers, in some ways, I write about this, I think, in the introduction a bit, give Dante sort of some insight into sort of what it means both to have that memorial, but not, then not to have that uh, memorial. And purgatory itself becomes, in some sense, Dante's verses, don't they? they? They become kind of the memorial to those soldiers. You know, one of the one of the insights that came to me probably very late in the project, how we typically talk about the Divine Comedy, we come up with many metaphors, but a summa, obviously, right? Or an encyclopedic uh, sort of work. Or a Gothic cathedral is another beautiful medieval uh, metaphor that we could apply. But the one that came to my mind was, it's a memorial park in some sense, you know, like a cemetery in verse, because we only know these people ever lived, many of them, because Dante writes about them, all right? So he is actually sort of giving us giving us their lives, enabling us 700 years later even to remember who Francesca was, whom we otherwise would probably know nothing about, right? He makes her come alive. And so the whole poem in, in many ways becomes this monument, I suppose, or a way of memorializing the dead and bringing them to life. That's a theme that runs through purgatory, but that I, I felt uh, I needed to uh, respect and, and, and give attention to in the book as well. That's a really helpful formulation, actually. And thinking about the tombs that we encounter on the journey through the afterlife with Dante, whether it's the tombs of Farinata and Cavalcanti or the tombs of the, on the Terrace of Pride, the, on the, the imagined the, uh, the freezes on the ground, tombstone-like. It's a really helpful way to understand what's happening. Now, I have to say that your book is so rich in research it's so rich in historical detail I imagine the journey of writing it you know mm. from that first moment in Colombia the journey must have been full of well a lot of hard work but also full of some really interesting surprises mm. I imagine were the moments in that journey that you felt particularly surprised by or excited by this was the best part of the project, I think, these surprises. In, in some sense, I think all academic work or scholarship is kind of detective work, right? We're uh, kind of chasing down clues and we're trying to sort of prove a theory, find evidence, et cetera, because we don't know, you know, where those packets of dust came from uh, that were found in the library. I had to go trace those down and other scholars, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century, provided much of the groundwork for what I ultimately pulled together. I used a term, I think, a theoretical term from the late Umberto Eco, abduction. He talks about abduction. I actually translated, I think, an essay by him when I was a graduate student, one of the first uh, publications I did. And abduction, you may know, is kind of, it's, it's sort of between deduction and induction. It's when you kind of rely a little bit on just pure luck, <laughs> chance, mistakes, perhaps, as well. Scientists sometimes talk about these things. People talk about them in almost every discipline. But then they somehow lead to the breakthrough, to the solution. Kepler famously did this in trying to sort of find out the orbit of Mars as an lips and not a circle and things like that. In any case, abduction or this combination of serendipity, intuition, and just pure luck came up several times in the project. And those were often the surprises. So one example would be in 2003, 2005, before I began working on the book, I was a counselor of the Dante Society of America. And one meeting there, the manager of the Longfellow House, which is where we'd meet, where Henry Wadsworth Longfellow lived and wrote his uh, translation, obviously, of Dante, the same home that had uh, been the home of George Washington <laughs> during the Revolutionary War, right before the Revolutionary War. So a very rich place. But Longfellow had, it turns out, one of those relics. He had uh, not a piece of Dante's body, obviously, not even anything that we call Dante dust, but he had pieces of this little wooden box, this little coffin in which the bones were found by chance in 1865. And so that was a big surprise to me, obviously, to, to come upon that. I ended up going back and doing archival work, and that became a big starting point for the project. I only write about it a little bit to the end of the book because it, it happened here, not in Italy. My book is more about Italy. 
But that relic was a big surprise to me. And finding the letters, some of which had never been transcribed even before, not all of them, and, and to work with those letters to show how Longfellow had come uh, had come to possess a relic in 1872 from a U.S. consul in Florence who bought it from somebody who got it from the mason who was at the work site in 1865 when the bones fell out of the box, et cetera. And there were these documents authenticated, notarized, et cetera. And I was able to piece that together. So that was a big find. You know, related to that, just on the Dante relics, and this is a good example of how just luck or maybe being sloppy sometimes pays off. I'm reading microform of the Italian newspapers in the New York City Public Library one of those summers when I'm in New York. The Osservatore Romano was on microform there, the, uh, the Vatican newspaper. And I'm looking for... 1865, I'm looking for coverage of the festivities in Florence, which, you know, was a big deal in, in May, May 14th to May 16th. And, and I'm finding those, my finger slips and I, I go too far on the microform and I, I'm getting into June and I see what looks like a picture of a tomb or something. And it turns out that the father of one of the engineers, who was a very important figure in the discovery of the bones and what happened right after the bones were discovered, this father of the engineer had his son, I guess, was writing to him. And his father was writing these letters to the editor of the Osservatore Romano, these long letters, detailed descriptions, clearly were firsthand accounts from the discovery of the bones. And these had never been mentioned before in any of the scholarship, obviously. And uh, I found two of them. I found one from June, I don't know, 11th, and one from a few days later. And uh, they gave me all of this kind of firsthand information with very rich, concrete details about the engineer. His name is Filippo Lanciani. He's uh, one of the two big engineers who is coordinating the excavations around Dante's tomb that enable him to find the bones on May 27th, 1865. And this young engineer, you know, talked about what it felt like to hold Dante's skull in his hands, you know, as they were sort of examining the bones and when the doctors came on the scene. And he gave the best explanation of something that came up in the reports that was very, very intriguing to me and important to the book. They found residue at the bottom of the tomb. In other words, uh, the human body, when it decomposes, sometimes forms this resin, this very hard residue. They had these scrapings. They scraped it off of the bottom and they put them in little packets and they sent them out for chemical analysis. And sure enough, it came back as organic matter. And so we presume that it's part of the body as it as to decompose. But he gave very detailed descriptions of what it was like to, to find it, to gather it, et cetera, and what happened to the people who were holding on to it. But Florentines in Ravenna who were then accused or suspected of maybe trying to steal Dante away from Ravenna and wanted to take it back. There was a showdown at one of the hotels where the Florentines actually, you know, faced the mob and had to sort of talk their way out of this. That was just pure luck. I found these letters and they became a big part of the story itself, you know. So there were those moments that just kept happening. One of them was very close to home at the University of Texas. We have a wonderful archive, a wonderful rare books museum, the Harry Ransom Center. And we just happened to have one of the early manuscripts of the Line Comedy for me. 1360 was a character in my story in my first chapter, The Death and Burial of Dante. So I've been working 100 yards or so from this manuscript. My office is very close to this museum and taking my students to see it and examining it myself and you know, doing sorts of things with it without realizing all these years that it was actually written out by you know, one of the people I was writing about uh, in the story who was with Dante at his deathbed probably in 1321. So those were the kinds of things that really uh, excited me and, and made the project so rich, but also so difficult to finish. I can only imagine. And it seems even just hearing you speak then, you know, it strikes me that one of the things that the book does and that actually is a bit of a preoccupation of yours across your career is about a sense of place and, you know, the, the body and its relationship to particular geographical places. I wonder whether telling the story of Dante's body actually helps us to understand Dante's relationship to place slightly differently. I mean, 
you talked about exile as as one way into this and that you know i think the account of exile that your book offers that uses the afterlife as well as the life you know almost as, seeing it as almost as a continuous story i think is really compelling but i wonder what what you feel is brought to that story about i suppose dante and place by the account of dante's dead body I think one of the quotes I use is from Vico, the Italian philosopher, and how one of the foundational events of human life is burial. Uh, he talks about marriage, he talks about religion, but he talks about burial, and he does a little bit of an etymological riff on how umare, uh, you know, the verb that's used to bury, actually gives name and an idea to humanitas, to humanity. So it's a foundational element. And so it's all about place. And, you know, Robert Harrison writes very eloquently about this in a book called The Dominion of the Dead talking about everything from ancient grave sites to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., and how you, we humanize space and place uh, sometimes with these acts of burial. So in terms of Dante's body itself, right, that was, that was definitely sort of in my mind. And the idea of exile, that the body itself experiencing this kind of exile as it is outside of the tomb. And, you know, that's where, you know, one of the discourses that runs through the book and that, that really required a lot of research was in relics and, you know, the history of relics and all of the thinking about saints and relics. And as, as you probably know from, from the book, I, the language I use of the, of the translation, this idea of the saint's body being moved to a proper place, usually by an altar in the church that is special to that saint. You know, Dante, I think one of the chapters is Saint Dante in my book. You know, he is treated in a secular kind of way as a saint. And the language that is used when describing the relics is often the very same language, very similar language that we would see in all of the descriptions, the hagiography and the descriptions of the relics of the saints. And so in that sense too, the relics as sort of embodying the, the notion of exile because they're usually taken away from sort of the place of, of burial was very much at the front of my mind. But you know, in a, in a bigger way, I, I was thinking of this after the book came out, but, you know, I could have called maybe the whole book based on the way some of the reviewers looked at it, A Tale of Two Cities. I mean, this, <laughs> this kind of perennial struggle between Florence and Ravenna, you know, for the, for the body, because as we know, not too long after Dante's death, Boccaccio will write about this. Florence will want him back, you know, or Boccaccio imagines they should want him back. Boccaccio, of course, will say that they don't deserve him, you know, because of what they did to him. And, you know, as the, uh, as the epigraph that we see on the tomb says, you know, Florence was a mother of very little love. And so, whereas Ravenna you know, welcomed Dante, you know, into its bosom. Uh, and so, you know, starting in the, in the 14th century and going right up until, I, I don't know, last year, 1999, I think there was some news about whether Dante would be brought provisionally, at least from Ravenna to Florence. I'm not seeing that today, but, but that, was, that was going on when I was writing the very last few pages of the book. And so, you know, the struggle between these two places, and then even within the place, you were talking about Florence and these special places in Florence, you know, I was focusing maybe more on Ravenna uh, for most of the book, but at some point I was pulling up even, I, I wasn't in Ravenna when I was writing most of it, but I, I would pull up Google Maps and I would sort of get into, you know, these maps and look at where Dante's tomb was in relationship to all of these different churches, especially for the World War II sequence, when I'm trying to figure out these bombings as allied planes, US and UK bombers are, pounding in North Central Italy uh, that's occupied by Germany at that time in 1944. And, you know, we see that these bombs were landing 100 yards or so from the church of San Francesco, close to where Dante's tomb was, et cetera, and all over the city. And I describe in, in great detail in, in that chapter sort of what it was like on the ground in Ravenna. I'm, I'm actually using the, the Google function, you know, how many feet is it or how many meters is it from Dante's tomb to there so that I can sort of give the reader a sense of how this is all coming to, to light. You know, while I'm on this, I just wanted to bring up one other character, going back to the surprises. 
and some people have told me this who've read the book, that their favorite character is Antonio Fusconi, who is the Sentinella, the watchman of Dante, this right. wonderful man, right? Who was a World War I veteran and then has all of these different functions, eventually becomes the custodian or guardian of the tomb from 1921 through his retirement in 1966. He just missed a few days, I think, between those years. But I found out about him, and he gives us a very detailed description uh, of 1944, what it was like as the, that the bombs are falling on Ravenna. And, and as Dante's bones are once again moved, <laughs> they were back in the tomb by this point, but here they are intentionally moved to that little garden. They were also afraid that Dante's tomb would be looted by the Nazis as they were sort of racing across central Florence ahead of the Allied advance. And so the bones were there from, was it in 1944, from over a year, I think, from March 1944 to May of 1945. And that was the last time that we know that they were moved. Of course, they moved back. The bones themselves were not taken out of the casket, but the, the casket itself was taken out of the marble tomb and then buried deep under the ground. So that story was a wonderful one. But again, I had to think specifically of, of, of as you say, of space in a very, very specific way. How many feet was this from the, uh, the tomb, et cetera, as this was all uh, happening uh, during the war. And that whole chapter, I should say, was a big surprise for me. I'd known a lot about Dante under fascism. This was a wonderful scholarship on that topic, but I, I didn't realize how much more there was as I was looking at the, the story of his bones and how um, you know one of the fascists, as Mussolini was about to go down, actually came up with a plan to transport, to go and steal Dante's body and take it to the Italian-Swiss border so that fascism could go out in a blaze of glory with the bones of this man who they looked at as sort of a foundational figure himself. And thankfully, of course, that did not happen. Absolutely extraordinary stuff, really. And I guess that, you know, the way in which the, the story ranges from literally bombs landing in close proximity to the body through to the more sort of high-minded intellectual responses to Dante and the way in which, I guess, you know, this seems to be, again, one of, one of the distinctive things about your book and the story that you tell is that it, it manages to connect the kind of the, the real tangibility of the story of what happens together with the literary reception, the integration into ideology, you know, it's all there. And the body becomes the perfect way to tell that story. I'm tempted to ask if there are connections with your earlier work on incarnation and incarnationalism. I don't know if that's pushing it too far, but your first book, Divine Dialectic, that explores incarnation, not just as an idea, but also as a sort of intellectual framework, which reaches from the tangible, the material through to the spiritual, intellectual. Well, thank you for finding that for me, because I hadn't thought of that, but, but you're absolutely right. Yes, the embodiment idea and the incarnation as both the fully human and fully divine, and then the connection to the, what I think of as a hallmark of Dante's poetic genius, the, the dialectic, the both-and uh, idea of not, not an either-or dichotomy, and not, not necessarily even a, a synthesis of, of, of a thesis antithesis into something higher, but these two things sort of coexisting at the same time, I think that's a fundamental feature of his of his thinking, of his work that sets him apart from many others. And uh, the incarnation, I think, gets at that as well. It marks my you know my my growth or my my attempted development as a writer, as somebody who can start moving toward a way of of using the research, you know, not skimping on the research in any way, but using it in a way, in this sense, sort of a historical narrative way that can make it into more of a story that that would then make it more accessible, perhaps, to a reader who is not trained in in some of the detailed ways that we would be in Dante's studies, but still sort of follow it as a story. And one of the biggest challenges of this book was, in fact, figuring out what is the organization of this book. I know these bones were found in 1865. Well, I, I want to I get the reader interested in that at the start. And so the prologue sort of gives us the discovery of the bones, but do we know they're Dante's bones? Well, not until 
we're going to look into the original tomb because if we find another body there, then we have a real problem, right? We have two bodies saying that Dante's, and that obviously has happened many times uh, to the embarrassment of many people over the centuries. I delayed that discovery moment of the tomb itself to the midpoint of the book. So we're going to go back after the the opening of the book to the burial in Ravenna in 1321 and then work our way up in time and eventually get back to 1865 where the book begins. But now we'll go right to the opening of the tomb on June 7th, a week or so later after the body is found. And then we'll go forward from there, you know, from June 7th and we'll, we'll go to through the rest of the 19th and into the 20th century to 1921 when the body will be exhumed once more on the 600th anniversary of his death and examined a very key part of the book. I think two or three chapters probably revolve around that. And then fascism after that, obviously, uh, for the next uh, 20 years with the body being moved once more in 1944 until we get to the modern day and we find those relics in 1999. <laughs> and so well, organizing the book in that way was a challenge because that was not the way I was really trained to do my, to my academic writing. I needed to work more like a historian, I suppose, but even like a novelist, historical novelist, who was trying to sort of the story as accessible and propulsive to keep the momentum going for the reader uh, without getting bogged down too much. I thought of it as very appropriate for Dante because I'm beginning in the middle, Medius Reis, right, the Divine Comedy. But it took so long in part because the writing was new to me. Uh, every one of my books has been new in that way. I had to learn to write in a different way, but, uh, but each one has been a, a different experience as a writer as well as a Dante scholar. I did really want to explore with you a little bit about your evolution as, as a writer and as a scholar, because the other element in all of this that you just briefly alluded to when you were talking about using Google Maps is, of course, your work in digital humanities, where Dante World's website, which also does really important things in terms of shaping how we might think about Dante and space, mm -hmm. that's one of the distinctive elements in that or aspects of that, mm -hmm. of that website. But, you know, the, the Dante Wells, the website you created 20 years ago, is it? Right. So I would have been working on that from 2001 to 2005, mm. I suppose, is when it really went up. And, you know, I've tinkered with it a little bit since. But right, it would be between my first book, Divine Dialectic, and then before I started uh, working. And then I eventually did the Dante World's Guides, the texts, uh, 2007, 2009. And that's when I began working on Dante's Bones. When I was working on the Dante World's website, we weren't using the phrase uh, digital humanity so much as we were just calling it instructional technology you know, for teaching. But of course, this was my scholarship. I was working on writing a commentary on the Divine Comedy based on my teaching of the poem, which I did every semester. I've done every semester for the last 30 years. And so working with people in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services Division, we put together this website. And I think what, what really inspired me to do it was the visual aspect of Dante's poem, something that I talk about all the time when I teach, right. and that was really impressed upon me when I was a student. The first time I studied Dante was as an undergraduate in my final year at Duke University, and I was a computer science major in college. And so I was right. always interested in in, in math and science, but I loved my Italian courses in art history and, and literature and the language, et cetera. And so I had a wonderful semester studying the Inferno with Wallace Fowley, who had studied himself with Matthias Eliot, the poet was at Harvard. Wallace Fowley was a very old man at that time, an emeritus. And he would tell these wonderful stories about T.S. Eliot and Dante. But, you know, one of the things I always remembered is how visual Dante's poetry was. We have to see what Dante says he saw to really fully understand what is happening as he goes down from one bulger to another, et cetera. And so here we have the technology now to actually take advantage of that. But it was the idea that, okay, instead of just giving us the text of Dante, maybe some images somewhere else and this somewhere else, I'm going to give you a visual representation of hell and 
Purgatory and Paradiso. And you're going to click on a region, not a canto, but a region. And then you'll see the images and, and the commentary and the audio that goes and the study questions for a class that go with that. And you'll sort of proceed geographically. You'll navigate the web and the website the way Dante and Virgil will be navigating the underworld as they go through the circles of hell and then up the The only way I could do a project like that, obviously, was to have great visual artists. I had a graphic design person and artist, Saloni Robertson, who did her own original illustrations for the website. But Saloni also did all of the visual work, the graphic design work that enables us to navigate the poem as we sort of go through the various parts of Dante's afterworlds. So I think in some ways it, it was the marriage of the message and the medium, I think one of the reviewers said in the New Yorker magazine uh, that made Dante worlds work so well. And I think this would be true of many epic poems in particular, the ways in which the navigation that we do on a website almost mirrors in some sense the journey that the protagonist sort of takes in their adventures. And then the other idea is the hyperlink function, right? The, the, the basic building blocks. My website is very simple. I didn't have to code it myself. I luckily had somebody do that, but I, but they let me get under the hood. They gave me the password so I could occasionally help out and I can go back and fix something when I make a mistake. But the hyperlinks enable us to send to basically, you know, be reading an entry, I don't know, on on Cato in the, about the first canto of purgatory. And then we're reminded of limbo. And so we'll click, you know, in the entry, go back to that previous entry. It'll just pop up as a little pop-up uh, window and you can maybe go through many of those. And that's the way we read Dante, right? We go further in the poem, but we're always reading backwards too. We're connecting backwards. And then we remembered that that was the image and that was the person back then. And so that was, that was a discovery for me. I probably had started the project and it was a year or two into it. And I thought, oh my gosh, why don't I have hyperlinks in my entries here that we can sort of go backwards you know, to that. Uh, so that was just a wonderful moment to just realize that the advantage of putting this in web form gave access to some of this visual poetics and the ways in which the intratextual connections within Dante's poem are so rich and, and students could easily appreciate that. And so that was a real find for me. You know, I'm just thinking of a funny thing I did in the website at the end of the Inferno, when Dante sees Lucifer, that moment when they're climbing down Lucifer's body, Virgil carrying Dante, and Virgil has to do a little gymnastics move. He has to do a flip or a somersault because they're going through the center of the earth, the center of gravity, and now they're, they're going up, <laughs> up Lucifer's leg as opposed to down his body. And poor Dante is confused because he looks back after they get off the body and he sees the legs sticking up and he says, wait a minute, what happened to the heads? I saw the three faces. Virgil has to explain it to him. Well, of course, in the, in the digital world, you can take Botticelli's wonderful image of Satan's body and you can just flip it over <laughs> and sort of put that in your website and you can say, oh, here's what Dante sees while he's still on the ice. And here's what he sees after Virgil does his little flip and they go back. And these little tricks and these little devices that the web enables us to do, I think, really do enhance the appreciation, the comprehension even of the poem as we go through. I had a, another look at the website and gave it some thought in the run-up to this podcast. It really struck me just how ahead of its time it was in some respects. So first of all, the, you know, recognising the potential of the digital of a website to bring together sound and image and text. That understanding of Dante's text, not as a purely textual phenomenon, but as one which also engages the senses, would engage with readers' expectation of, of music, of sight, of visual art, of visual culture more generally. Also, the historicizing turn that Dante Studies is taking at the moment, mm. or has taken in the last few years. Mm. The website, in many ways, anticipates that because it brings kind of tangible experience, sensory experience, mm. to the heart of the reader's experience which is so important. And also the idea of what we can gain by thinking about a text through digital forms and how it actually can give you a new intellectual framework. 
it's aged very well, I guess. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and I think it's joining many other wonderful digital projects in Dante studies, right? As we know that the Dartmouth Dante database with all of those commentaries, which then enables us to sort of access quickly those texts that would be otherwise very difficult to sort of pull off the shelves around the library. But I do think Dante studies generally has been on the cutting edge of this digital revolution in education. So the other part of your evolution as a scholar is something that you, you alluded to before, which was your development of different writing styles, addressing perhaps broader audiences than just the academic audiences. And I know that your current project is funded by a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholars Fellowship. So it strikes me that you, you are a wonderful example of a public scholar. I guess in saying that, I'd like to ask you what being a public scholar means to you. How do you understand that idea? I think that's been sort of my trajectory. I've been moving toward this, as I think I said, through my career, and maybe I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm doing it more directly. But it's taking what we do in the classroom, I suppose, on some level, the education aspect of it, and engaging the, the general public or the broader audience. You know, I think maybe there are two aspects of it that are, are really important. One is the scholarship itself and sort of making the work that we do accessible and relevant for the times in which we live. Another, I think, perhaps is engaging with the significance of the work we do. The so what question, I, I often say when I talk to my students, why does this matter so much? Why does somebody want to know this? Of course, Dante happens to be one of those writers who brings so much to the table there, not just because of his own work, but because of how his work, his legacy has been received over time. Just thinking of Dennis Looney's 2011 book on the African-American reception of Dante, for example, but many other examples as well. But as you probably know, that kind of work requires a different kind of writing. In some sense, just as we often have to teach our students to undo some of the things they may have learned previously in their schools, as I was trying to write articles for magazines or for public venues, I realized I learned quickly. I had to learn to write in a more narrative way often. I had to learn to write shorter sentences very often. I had to learn to write in ways that would engage a broader audience very differently from the ways we might do a thesis argument kind of chapter or article in our own work. So that's been another level of development for me in terms of writing in a way that becomes much more accessible and much more significant, I think, in terms of reaching a larger audience. So I've done it in small pieces, and then Dante's Bones clearly helped me along in that way. I, I tried to think that way, especially when I was writing the more narrative sections of the book. But the NEH came up with this program in 2016. It's not their usual research fellowship, which I had for my earlier work in Dante's Bones. It's called a Public Scholars Fellowship because while academics can apply for it, as I did, many of the other people who apply and receive this fellowship are not academics. They're journalists or they're people in different areas of inquiry. And I was very fortunate to get one for my work on Dante's American Inferno, which is in some way an extension of Dante's Bones. The last chapter, as you know, is Dante's global face, but I talk specifically about what's going on in the U.S. and especially in popular culture. So it's not just the works that call in very sustained ways on Dante as an adaptation, thinking of the Dan Brown novel or something like that. You know, often it could be a smaller segment. It could be a television series, you know, where Dante's Inferno becomes sort of a major trope. It could be a political movement, you know, like the movement for racial justice in the United States, where activists are calling on what they think of as Dante's verse, you know, that the hottest places in hell are reserved for people who maintain neutrality in times of moral crisis. It's not an accurate verse from the Divine Comedy, but it does get at the issue of how Dante feels. As we know, it's a very dramatic part of the Inferno before we actually get into help where the cowardly neutrals are punished. And so those kinds of ideas and uses of Dante in culture, even beyond 
the literary artistic realms drew me to this idea of writing a book on Dante in the popular imagination. It's an ongoing project, Matthew, so I don't have it all worked out. I'm figuring it out as I go along and I'm, I'm making changes on the fly because things are happening that affect the project itself. But it's exciting to, to write a book in the language of publishing, we would call it a nonfiction trade book, as opposed to the monograph, you know, that I wrote for Toronto, The Divine Dialectic, you know, these would fall into different categories, but they require a different way of writing, of approaching topic. And so this one, yes, specifically calls on that idea of the public scholar and of somebody who's writing a book that will appeal primarily to non-academic readers. And I wonder if thinking about writing in this different way and addressing this different audience, does that change the way you think about Dante? Has it brought different things to the front of your mind when you're actually thinking in, in your own research about Dante and your own engagement with Dante? It goes back to where we began, I think, our conversation a little bit, the, the more personal elements of it, right? And, you know, part of it is, and, you know, you may be finding this yourself, if you would ask me at a certain time of my year, what's my favorite part of the Divine Comedy? Oh, the Inferno. Uh, actually, for me, the first part, the first one I would have said was Paradiso because I was the math major, computer major, so I was into the abstractions and all that, so I loved Paradiso. Then the Inferno, for sure. As I've gotten older, Purgatory, for sure, because, again, we're looking back at life and we're connecting to living and the dead, et cetera, things we said earlier. And so as I'm writing in this more public way, I'm thinking more personally of these issues and bringing my own voice, perhaps, into the story, because I've, I've been around long enough now that I've had some experiences with the video game, for example, where my commentary was used and I got email or, or with a particular Dante statue where my mother used to take me when I was a child or something like that. Those are elements that I wouldn't have thought of as part of my writing, perhaps, at an earlier stage in a different venue for a different mode, but I feel like they help to enliven the story a little bit and, and bring the story to life a little bit, connect what I'm talking about to, to readers. The other thing I guess is teaching, you know, when we're teaching Dante to our students, we're often doing it maybe in a different mode than we might do when we're writing an academic paper or giving a paper at a conference and we're connecting Dante to their lives and they're connecting it to their lives. We have to, right, to make it interesting to them. And so some of that is coming together, I think, as well. I'm, I'm, when I'm writing now for this new book in this new way, I'm often thinking how I would be talking to my students about these same issues. And it goes back the other way, too. The things I'm writing then help me when I go back to my classroom teaching or to my virtual classroom teaching, and we'll be talking to students. So that reciprocity between teaching and research, which for me has been fundamental from the beginning of my career, has become only that much more salient, I think, now at this stage of my career. I find that so interesting because in the conversations I have with people about Dante, that actually the things that are happening in the world, you know, whether it's the accelerating climate crisis or the Black Lives Matter movement or obviously the pandemic, we can't pretend that these things aren't happening when we talk about Dante, when we think about Dante. And I think it's part of what's really inspiring about what you're doing in sort of shaping this role as a public scholar is working out ways in which we can make something meaningful out of those connections the way in which you know the text is being reframed for us all the time by the world that we mm. live in what do we do with that not just in an impressionistic way but actually in a scholarly mm. way that's very engaged i find that very compelling and exciting and don't you think it's wonderful that it was Dante who decided to write his poem in Italian, right? So that he could actually be more relevant and be read by, by more people in his age. That's one reason it became sort of the bestseller that it did after, after he published the different parts of the Divine Comedy. So in some ways, without putting Dante on a pedestal, we are, we're still honoring that spirit of accessibility, of sort of trying to make a difference. The, the so what question comes up even in Dante's own work. 
and we're doing it now, even if people are resisting Dante, even if there are people looking at Dante in a way that he becomes a foil for something else. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I, I embrace that. Uh, we don't want to go back to living in the 14th century, I don't think, as bad as things are today. So we still have ways in which we engage with the text that don't have to always be completely geared toward just, just glorifying that text, but it still becomes that much more important for what we're doing today. Well, I mean, I certainly feel like any conversation, whether you're agreeing or disagreeing with Dante, any conversation about pretty much anything is better when Dante is somewhere in it. But I guess that's, that's my professional bias. Look, it's been absolutely brilliant talking with you, Guy. I feel like we could go on for ages and we, we must draw to a close, unfortunately. But I'd just like to thank you for, for the wonderful conversation and I can't wait to read the next book when it's out. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's been a great pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to Guy. You really get the sense of the enjoyment he found in writing his most recent book, Dante's Bones. And I'm sure that same enjoyment would be shared by anyone who reads it. And it's really great that Guy's commitment to public communication has been recognised by the National Endowment for the Humanities with the award of the Public Scholars Fellowship. It's a really exciting project and I can't wait to see how it develops. Now, we've got plenty more conversations lined up for the coming weeks, so do look out for those. Meanwhile, I'd just like to say thank you very much for listening.